to New Life Church's weekly message. New Life Church's mission is to lead people into a transforming relationship with Jesus through the gospel. This week, Pastor Brian Robertson brings us the second message of the series, Gospel Driven Church, entitled, Gospel-Shaped Identity. You can find the sermon outline for this message at enewlife.com. We're going to get right into it, so if you can uh, pull the uh, notes out of your worship folder, there's a sermon outline there for you. We're going to be in several passages this morning. Don't forget, if you haven't downloaded the New Life app, you can do that at the App Store, or I think on, if you're a non-iPhone person, it'd be like Google Play, Play something, like th- something like that. And uh, if, if you don't know how to do that, find somebody that looks well younger than you on your row and ask them to do that for you. They can download it. But on there are all the notes this morning, so you can actually type in your notes and then email it to yourself, and you'll have them all set. Well, as Pastor Steve told us last weekend in this series of four messages, we want to look at who we are as a church and what we're all about. We introduced this diagram that illustrates what the Lord has been doing here at New Life, and we call it the Gospel-Driven Church Diagram. And in it, The gospel is in the center to denote that this church believes that only Jesus Christ and his message of the good news of the gospel deserve to have center stage here. That the primary driving force behind everything we do is the gospel. Last weekend, we defined a gospel-driven church as a congregation that is seeking to keep Jesus and his gospel front and center in the life of the church where the people are committed to maintaining a laser-like focus on Christ and on proclaiming and demonstrating the gospel, where we are resolved to keep the main thing the main thing. If there's a core value at New Life Church, then it would be the value of gospel transformation. Gospel transformation is your life changing, my life changing, our community changing, the world changing, all as a result of the gospel being understood and embraced and believed at ever-deepening levels in our hearts. Not on a timeline that we put in place from our point of view, but on God's timeline, working in each of us as he brings himself glory. Now, there are three key areas that we said where the gospel was meant to do its transforming work in our lives. They included our identity, our community, and our mission. And this weekend, we are going to look at our gospel-shaped identity. Several years ago, Terry and I used to attend the Polaris Grace Brethren's uh, concert series. And they featured well-known Christian artists each month. And one that they had come almost every year was uh, a singer named Mark Lowry. And each year, without fail, the exact same thing would happen. That someone in the audience before the concert began would come up to me and ask for my autograph. (laughs) Why? Well, because they were convinced that I was Mark Lowry. Now, I don't know why they thought Mark Lowry would be in the audience before his concert, but anyway. So it was usually a huge challenge to convince them that they were incorrect. And I often wondered if I should just sign their program and leave it at that. And then when they got back to their seat and saw it, not, did not say Mark Lowry, they would get the point. Now, let me clarify that in my opinion, I look nothing like Mark Lowry, 
So this became funnier each time that it took place. And Terry can vouch for this as she did in the first celebration. This was actually taking place. It was a case of mistaken identity. These fans were convinced that I was who they thought I was. But no matter what they thought, no matter how real it was to them, it was not the case. Facts had to take over. But here's the thing. It's not only possible to be mistaken about someone else's identity, it's also possible to be mistaken about your own identity. And I'm convinced that many believers suffer that kind of mistaken identity. Sadly, badly mistaken about who they really are. And when we don't have a grasp of our own identity as believers in Jesus, the ramifications are far-reaching and they are potentially devastating. So it's this concept of gospel-shaped identity that we're going to explore together today. And we're going to start with this key truth. It's on your outline in the box. The gospel of Christ has the power to transform our identity, how we perceive ourselves. The gospel of Christ has the power to transform our identity, how we perceive ourselves. John 10.10 says, The thief comes only to steal and to destroy, kill and destroy. I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. And I believe part of that abundant life is understanding who we are in Christ. So we're going to look at six thoughts about this idea of identity today. Number one, Jesus' own identity was central to his message and his mission. Jesus' identity was central to his message and his mission. Identity was a big deal to Jesus. He often asked questions, didn't he? Like, who do men say that I am? And who do you say that I am? It's an identity question, isn't it? Have you ever wondered when the precise moment was in Jesus' life when he knew who he was? We're not told exactly, but we are told that it must have been, it had to have been before age 12. Remember, that's how old he was when he looked at his perplexed parents who had lost him in a crowd. Not fun times, right, parents? They lost him in a crowd. They found him in the synagogue, and he told them, I must be about my father's business. Speaking of God as his father, basically, as a young teenager, he was already self-aware of who he was. I'm here, I'm God's son, and I'm on a mission for my father, is what he's saying, in essence. We also know that by the time of his baptism at age 30, it was revealed to a few others who he was. And remember that his cousin John brought him up out of the water in a river there, and a voice boomed out of the sky declaring, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So there was the father, God the father himself, calling Jesus his son, also declaring that he was pleased with his son, even before Jesus had performed any miracles, done any ministry, or preached any sermons. And that's significant. God is taking pleasure in Jesus, and it wasn't based on his performance, just his identity. Remember that. Now, look at this. Not long after God declared Jesus' identity, Satan came along and challenged his identity. The very next chapter in Matthew records Jesus' temptation in the wilderness and the, the tempter, Satan, entering the scene and saying, now remember what God had said, what the Father had said, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Satan comes along and says, if you are the Son of God, then do these things. 
You're the son of God, huh? Really? Well, we'll just have to see about that. Prove that to me by doing something spectacular. Now, what's happening here? Well, number two, God-affirmed identity will always be challenged. Will always be challenged. He was challenging Jesus' identity, telling him he needed to prove who he was by doing something. But Jesus knew who he was and that his identity as God's beloved son was not based on his performance, but on the clear declaration of his father. As a result, he was free. Jesus was free. He didn't feel compelled to have to prove anything, especially not to Satan. He refused to act outside of his true identity. He was grounded in the father's declaration of who he was, and that empowered him to meet Satan's challenge head on and successfully resist the enticements being offered to him. Well, in the very next chapter, we find Jesus returning to his hometown where he grew up and where there was a lot of doubt about his identity. And it says that he went to the place of worship. So Jesus goes to the synagogue. He opens up the Old Testament scriptures and he reads Isaiah 61, which is a passage that prophesies the coming of the anointed one in his mission. So Jesus goes in, reads it aloud, rolls up the scroll, sits down and says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, all of this is about me. I'd say Jesus knew who he was. And he proceeded to launch his ministry in the power of the Spirit with a firm confidence of who he was. Now, I'm convinced that these, these events in the life of Jesus reveal a pattern that we would be well, do well to understand. Because this pattern relates not only to Jesus, but to us as well. Do you see it? You see, first God declares Jesus' true identity. You're my beloved son. And then his idea is challenged by the evil one. If you are the son of God, do this stuff. Always interesting how the enemy wants us to do stuff to prove who we are. Then Jesus' identity is rooted in the scriptures and declares it to be true about him. And then he securing his identity, confidently launches out on his mission. So there's a pattern here, isn't there? There's a pattern that we can look at for our own lives. Look at this. Our identity is declared by God. Our identity is challenged by others, but it is reaffirmed in scripture, as we'll see today. And identity, once we get that, flows into mission. We can confidently minister and outside of ourselves to others because of that. This is how it unfolded in Jesus' life, that being confident of his declared identity and reaffirming that in Scripture, that fueled him with great confidence and led to a powerful, spirit-enabled ministry and mission. Identity is huge. Everything in Jesus' life, including all of the events we know of through reading the gospel books, flowed from him having a firm grasp of who he was, his identity. And I would say this, that everything in your life and mine flows out of our identity too. When it comes to how well we can resist temptation, when it comes to how confidently we carry out our calling, when it comes to how we deal with the naysayers and the doubters in our lives, being secure in our identity is perhaps the key factor in all of that. See, why? Why, why, why do we need to know what our identity is? Well, because identity is easily distorted. And the ramifications are far-reaching. Our identity is easily distorted. You see, 
we have to realize that our behavior flows out of our identity. And if our identity is distorted, what's going to happen to our behavior? It'll be distorted too. Generally speaking, we act out of our own perceptions. How we see ourselves is one of the most determining factors of how we, how we live our lives. So all this begs kind of the question, where do you get your identity? Where does it come from? How is it formed? What are the forces that shape and mold the image of ourselves that we hold in our imagination and our thoughts? People who study this have noted several common sources of identity, and so we're going to look at a, a few of them. It is important to understand that part of our identity comes from the belief that I am who others tell me I am. Our self-perceptions are often formed by what certain significant others have spoken into our lives. For example, what did my parents speak into my life if they were around? What did I get from my mom and dad verbally and non-verbally? See, what we received from our parents or did not received from our parents growing up, cements in our minds a picture of ourselves that can stay with us for decades, even a lifetime. And we begin to build our identity and believe that, well, you're a loser, or you're lazy, or you're worthless. You're not going to amount to much. Your sister's the pretty one, you're the smart one. But we, always, we all want to be the smart one, right? Or it can go the other way. You're better than everybody else. And so you should do better. You should win more. You should get better grades. So often parents have a mold that they want to conform their kids to. And the expectation that comes then defines the child, or in many cases defines the child's rebellions as, rebellion as we push back against it. What about this? How did my teachers view me? You know, we spend a lot of time with teachers in our, the early stages of our life. Was I a good student or a problem student? Maybe key teachers during those years saw you primarily as a troublemaker or the quiet kid or the class clown or the underachiever. And their views of us can mark us very deeply. How did my peers view me? Now, last week we joked about those brutal middle school years. You know, I've never done kind of an informal uh, survey where I said, how many of you, what's the time in your life that you'd like to return to if you could? Nobody ever says the seventh grade. <laughs> Nobody. But I wonder, you know, we joke about it, but I wonder how many of us are actually living out the label that our peers gave us during those years. And often it was based on our appearance, wasn't it? Well, you're a loser, or you're the fat kid, or you're the nerd, or the beanpole, or the outcast, or you're kind of ghetto, or you're the faggot. Or on the other end of the spectrum, maybe you, you get these labels, you're the cool kid, or the rich kid, or the star athlete, or like they said to me, the chick magnet. No. <laughs> what can I say? Mark Lowry, the chick magnet. Yeah, okay. Think about how those things have stuck, though. What our peers thought of us mattered, didn't it? But is that really who you are, what others said about you? What about this? I am what I do. 
See, this isn't what people tell me. This is how people view me if they view me a certain way. I am what I do. In a performance-based culture like we live in, this source of identity is very common. And it used to be mostly just amongst men. And ladies, I think you would probably tell us today that that's not still true. But it's for all of us as adults. It's what we do. You know, people often define themselves by our roles and our vocations. Our first question of each other sometimes when we meet somebody is, well, what do you do? Well, I'm a businessman, I'm an engineer, I'm a doctor, I work in IT, I'm just a homemaker. I'm a single parent. I'm the guy without a job. And that can become deeply ingrained and actually become our primary identity. Another one is this, I am what was done to me. How many people define themselves in their own mind primarily by something evil that was done to them maybe last year or maybe 20 years ago. Abuse, and betrayal, and abandonment. Nearly every day, I see the impact of this on young men who grew up with absentee fathers, who are now struggling to prove themselves and find approval for that huge emotional gap that was created by a dad who wasn't at home, or wasn't there, or was there, but was completely unengaged in their son's life. And this happens to gals too. Now trying to find acceptance and love and affection from men or from careers. But it begs the question, is this what defines us? What someone has done to us? Does victim have to continue to be our primary identity? I am what I was diagnosed to be. I have a number of friends with addiction backgrounds and I know that part of, the re- part of recovery is owning the addiction and taking responsibility for it. But I wonder if it's possible to be honest and admit that without it defining you for the rest of your life. Some people have been diagnosed with a mental disorder and the culture seems to me they want to define us by those conditions. Well, who are you? Well, I'm bipolar, or I'm OCD, or I'm MPD, or I'm another set of letters. Fill in the blank. Now, I'm not denying that those conditions exist, but I am asking if they should define our entire being. I am what I feel inside. This is, there are things very deep within us, aren't there? I am what I feel inside or what I struggle with internally. And so we start believing I'm who my sexual attractions say I am. I am a gender that I feel. I'm the fat one or the ugly one or the rejected one. I'm the one who is never good enough. These feelings are real. And they're founded really in some fact or some event. They are real, but they are not the truest truth about you. Maybe you say, I, I believe I am what I wear, or what I have in my wallet, or what I've received kudos for, or where I live. It's easy to become defined by what brand you enjoy or prefer. Even if it's not really how you define yourself, people can peg you that way. It's very hard to not compare yourself to someone who has more money or more friends or whatever. We get caught up in being the one who is noticed and honored and awarded 
And we fight for these things, not that they are in and of themselves bad, but because we feel empty and ignored if we don't have them. What about the house you live in? What suburb is your home in? What if it's not in the burbs? Does it have a lot? How many square footage do you have? Do you have acreage? On what side of the creek do you live? This one or the other one? If you live in Gehanna, you know exactly what I'm talking about. By the way, I live on this side of the creek. Okay. <laughs> See what we do? I am what the culture says I am. Listen to the news enough and you might come away with the idea that you're nothing more than a consumer. Yep, that's my identity. I'm a consumer. When I hear the word, you know, when I hear that word, I often just think of like Pac-Man, one big mouth going around just gobbling up everything in sight, food and drinks and entertainment and buildings and cars, like I'm just one giant appetite Pac-Man. Or these days, you're not just a consumer. I want to announce, if you haven't noticed yet, you are a voter. You're a voter, that's what we're being told we are today, so go out and, you know, I am what the culture tells me I am. So in your margin there, you might want to even just write down, what, what is something, where do I think my, at least part of my identity has come from? What, what, where's it coming from? We, we know this, right? We all do. So I want us to take a minute and 30 seconds and look at a clip from this past Sunday night on NBC at the Golden Globe Awards. Listen carefully. That's what we do, right? And when we finally achieve it, whatever it was we were looking for, we just want another one. You see, if he becomes three-time Golden Globe winner Jim Carrey, what will he dream about? Being four-time. Because it's never enough. If our identity comes from these things, it's never enough. We get our identity from a variety of sources, and it's an interesting exercise to try and discern, as I've asked you to, to where that comes from. But when I read the Bible, God's holy and true word, and when I see how God speaks about his redeemed people, I realize that the mental pictures that arise from these other sources are actually identity distortions. It's not that they are all completely and totally inaccurate, it's just that they're not the truest truth about you if you're a believer in Jesus today. Those images don't define you, at least not in God's mind. This is what I'm getting at, that the truest truth about any of us is what God thinks about us. My truest self-image, my primary identity does not arise from what I do or who I was or who others tell me I am, not from my latest diagnosis or what the culture says. My primary identity comes from what God says I am. The gospel has the power to shape, or more accurately, reshape and transform our identity. The gospel tells us what God thinks about us, and that is life-changing. You know who you are? You are first and foremost who God has declared you to be. 
And if that doesn't square with what others think of you, they're the ones who need to change their view, not God. And if that doesn't match with your view of yourself, then you must let God speak truth into you. Here are the facts. God's right, we are not. The gospel of Jesus Christ contains within itself the power to totally reshape your identity. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And through the gospel, a newer and truer identity is bestowed upon all who believe it. The key, of course, in this matter is being in Christ. Anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. That was one of Paul's favorite terms to describe a person who has been awakened to see the beauty of Jesus and to understand how Jesus' life and death and resurrection were sufficient to address all their sins and change their status from lost to saved. From under God's wrath to swimming in God's mercy. From being in Adam to being in Christ. You see, for those of us who are truly in Christ through believing the gospel, the whole ballgame has been changed. Others may not fully realize it. And our own behavior may not yet fully be in alignment with it. But that doesn't change the reality that God has made a fundamental change in who we are. Being in Christ means sharing in his death and resurrection in such a way that our primary identity has been completely transformed. The gospel was meant to shape our identity. But for that to affect our daily lives, we have to believe it deeply, deliberately, and daily. One way for that to drive this deep down is to make a practice of what we say around here is preaching the gospel to yourself every day. Instead of going through your days assuming the gospel, preaching the gospel to yourself would involve intentionally calling to mind what God has done for you in Christ and what that means for your identity. Preach to yourself the gospel truth that transformed, you are a person transformed by the gospel. And it will remind you who you are in the sight of God. Because God's people are defined by a completely new identity. A completely new identity. I am who God has declared me to be. So what is that? Who are we? What has God said? Well, we could go on all day. I want to tell you six, th six ways that the word of God would describe you if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. In Ephesians chapter 1, it says that we are saints. Not the statue kind. The kind that simply means we are part of his family. We've been made saints. 1 Corinthians 4, 2 Corinthians 5 says that we're servants, not the kind that begrudgingly does what the master tells him to do, but the servant who says, out of what you have done for me, I'm going to serve you. In 1 John 3, we find that we are sons and daughters. And we are sons and daughters of the most high God. Our dad is the king. So we get to be princes and princesses. John 4, Hebrews 12, 1 Peter 2 says that we are worshipers, those who are allowed into the throne room. 
to kneel before the God of the universe and give him the worship that he is worthy of. Luke 6, John 8 says that we're his disciples. We are followers of Jesus. We are, his, we are learners of this great teacher. We are the ones who get to walk in the dust of our rabbi and become like him. Acts 1, 2 Corinthians 5 says that we are missionaries. We're going to talk about this more in two weeks. We are missionaries. We are ambassadors. We have been given the task to tell this great news to other people. Ephesians 4, 22 through 24 challenges us, us to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Let's preach the gospel to ourselves every day so that we understand that we have been given a completely new identity. On the back of your outline this morning, it says, who God says I am. And there's a ton of them. And the scriptures, I'd encourage you, very practically, this week, the next couple weeks, take one per day. I am chosen by God. And then read out loud, 1 Peter 2, 9. I talked to a mom right after that said, every morning before they go to school, she and her kids are going to take one of these. Before her kids go to school, she's going to help them understand that you're chosen by God. You're God's son or your daughter. Can you imagine going out of the house every morning that way? In the bookstore, we found out this morning, though, this is going to be, they're going to be in next week, is this little pamphlet. It's $4. Your true identity, who I am in Christ. This might help you. Plaster it on a wall and rehearse it every day to yourself. We have encounters coming up. Men's and women's freedom encounters. And a, a big part of what we do on these weekends is talk about identity, who we are in Christ, where it's been distorted. And God has freed up so many men and women over the years in this area. Because see, if our identity's wrong, we hold on to grudges and we become bitter. And then we just get stuck. The men's is coming up the end of March. The women's is the beginning of April. I'd encourage you to look in your worship folder to give you information. You can register for those. How many of you have been to a men's or women's encounter and you'd recommend it to somebody else? Yeah, lots of you. Many people in our church point to that weekend as a turning point in their growth. Let me give you one other thing. And this is something I talk to uh, guys that I work with about how many of you have a mirror in your house? Oh, you liars. How many of you have a mirror in your house? Okay. Yes, but I never look at it. I just look this good without, anyway. Here's what you do. You get a mirror and a dry erase marker. And every morning, I want to be careful <laughs> to get you there. Okay. Every morning you, you, walk, you walk in and maybe it's in your bathroom or wherever it is and don't use a uh, marker that's water-soluble because when you take a shower, it'll all go, <clears throat> okay? And especially if you're using a red marker, that's not a good look. <clears throat> anyway, I'm going to give you time to get that one. Okay. So go, into your, go into this mirror and ask God, what, what do you want to remind me of today? Who am I in Christ? And you just write it on your mirror. 
I'm a son. I'm saved. I'm a, I'm a child of the king. In a few days, you're going to walk in and all this truth is going to be right there. If you're a married couple, each of you take a side of the mirror. You know what will let you do? See what God's doing in your spouse's life. You know what else you can do? Give your kids a marker. Last night, a little girl over here goes, woo, markers. <laughs> Give your kids a marker and have them do the same thing. Hey, kids, go into your bathroom every morning and write down something on the mirror of who God says you are. Guess what you get to do, parents? You get to see what God's doing in your kid's life. Rehearse this to yourself every day and it will set you free. You do not have to continue suffering from a case of mistaken identity. You don't. Let's be free. Sure, your newfound gospel identity will be challenged by others just like Jesus was. But you can just go back to scriptures, back to what God said is the truth, truth about you. And that picture will become more and more ingrained in your heart and mind as you rehearse the truth about yourself every day. And what others think and how they will define you will become less and less important to you. And what you believe about yourself will start changing and it will take over. You see, when we truly believe the gospel, it frees us from having to try and pretend that we're better than we really are. Because that's exhausting. When we truly believe the gospel, it takes the pressure off that we must perform well for God to love us. Anybody ever been there? If I, if I d perform well, God will love me. If I don't, then he stops loving me. When we truly believe the gospel, it frees us from feeling like we need to hide our true selves out of fear that people will re reject us if they really knew us. When we truly believe the gospel, it frees us from approval addiction, from having to try and please everyone and get them to like us, which is even more exhausting than the first one. When we truly believe the gospel, it frees us from the need to prove to others that we belong and that we matter or that they should respect us. That's the power of the gospel. And that's what comes from letting the gospel shape your identity. Now, I know that some of you are saying to this to yourself right now, well, he doesn't know me. He doesn't understand my situation, my life, my sinful inclinations, my doubts, my lack of faith. He doesn't have any idea what I struggle with and how bad I am. Oh, yeah? So you struggle with doubting God, wondering if you've done enough to get more of his favor? Me, too. You... You expend lots of energy and effort making sure people like and respect you? Me too. You continue to struggle with fighting the temptation of sin? Me too. I've spent most of my life trying to live right. I, take, I took pride in my successes. I also had immense shame at my failures. Yes, my salvation was a gift from God, but I had somehow been convinced into thinking that my actions could evoke God to bless me more 
or that my actions would cause him to withhold his favor from me because of something I had or had not done. Here's what changed. The truth of the gospel says that the work of salvation is all about what Jesus has finished and completed, not about what I'm trying to do. There's a phrase that Martin Luther, the first one, stated during the Protestant Reformation that says this. It's in Latin. Simul justus et peccator. And it means this. At once and at the same time, we are righteous and sinners. Here's the point. In and of ourselves, we are sinners. But because of Jesus, we are given Jesus' righteousness as if it were our own. The theological term is, is that it has been imputed to us. We must choose to live in this glorious dichotomy that we are at the same time righteous and sinners. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that he made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Therefore, we can live in the truth of who we really are, who God has declared us and recreated us to be, worth his blood, every drop of it, a child of the most high God standing before him in total righteousness, loved with an everlasting love, a treasure of amazing worth, blameless and clean before him, no longer bound by shame, no longer the focus of wrath, no longer in fear of God's wrath, free, new, more than conquerors with the power of the Spirit to fight. Every believer is someone who is incorporated into Christ's body by the power of the Spirit. All this because of one who emptied himself and became a servant, Philippians 2.7. Understanding and believing how God sees me and those around me has changed every relationship in my life. I now know that my identity is at the root of every behavior. Praise God that he has made me a new creation in Christ. That we can together say, the old things have passed away. Behold, the new has come. Let's pray together. Father, we stand here as grateful people for who you have created us and recreated us to be. We also are here as needy people who listen to a hundred other voices. And we claim as truth things that are not the truest truth about us. May we live as believers in the power that comes when we know who we are. Father, for those who are here this morning that have yet to answer your call in their lives to step into relationship with you, may today be the day that they do that. 
Father, remind us in these moments of who we are and who you desire us to be as people who live in the truth. That our true identity comes from what you say about us. Visit us each week as we continue to journey through God's word and seek to know him better through the gospel. Our prayer is that the gospel has taken a deeper hold of you as we have studied the word together at New Life Church, where Jesus is front and center all the time.